we can stand in you and because of you and through you, God, in the love, in your love, because of your love that you gave, Lord, at the cross. God, and so many years ago, God, you made a promise, Lord, that the line, the scepter shall not depart from the line of Judah. And since then, people have been looking for the coming King, the coming Messiah. And God, we know, Lord, that that culminated in you, in the Lord Jesus Christ, God, at the cross, Lord, that you are the Messiah. And because you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the promised one, Father, we have hope and we have life everlasting, God. God, thank you for that gift. Lord, thank you that your promises are true and trustworthy. God, we love you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And children, if you'll gather up at the front to head down to Children's Church. Good morning again. We are um, in a series, and we'll talk about that in a second. So I wanted to pause, and I want to do this a little more regularly. Um, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time. just want to make sure we all know what we're about to do. Many of you have been a part of church for a while. Some of you are a little bit newer. Um, but... We're about to spend time just studying God's Word, and we call that preaching. Um, I think it's good to know why we do that. I think that's helpful. I think it's good to know why we sing songs. I think it's good to know why we um, give money in the offering, why we pray, why we fellowship, why we have coffee. Um, I think it's a good thing for us to regularly remind ourselves of why we do the things that we do here on a Sunday morning. Uh, so at this moment, just want to spend a few moments just, why are we even going to preach? Number one, we believe God's Word is about God, and it's his gospel. So it's a book all about him and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe God's word is perfect, and it's without error. So when we come, we believe that this word perfectly reveals God. We believe God's word uh, strengthens our faith, convicts us of sin, and is a means of grace that not only would we believe, but also that we would continue to believe and grow in our faith. We believe God's word is really the spiritual food for our souls. So this is the way that we grow spiritually is by eating of the food. And so when we preach, we come to the word to hear what God says, not what we want. That's really important because you might be one of those people and you maybe have said this. Man, I didn't get anything out of today's service. You ever say something like that? Like you're leaving and like, man, who's that sermon for? Um, not for me. Um, because maybe it didn't, are you laughing in agreement? What? Because <laughs> you would never do that here. But we do that when we come and we say, tell me what I need to hear. Tell me what I want. Preach to my soapbox. But when we come, we're saying, reveal to us God. That's what the word of God is going to do. And so we don't preach, we don't listen for what we want to hear. We listen to see who God is and what he has done. Uh, through preaching, we, be, we strive to become more and more like Jesus because the whole Bible is really about Jesus Christ 
and how he brings us to God. And so as we read, we're understanding who this Jesus is, how he saves us, what this new life is that he gives us. Uh, Preaching is about revealing truth so that as we understand this truth, we will glorify God all the more in our lives. And so that's what we do. When we come, we're coming to hear who is God. What has he done, and who are we, and what do we do? But it all starts with who is God, not with, all right, what do I do? All right, tell me what I want to hear. Because when we do that, we, we, we start from the wrong, um, the wrong area. Uh, so that's what we do as we come. We come because we believe God's word is authoritative. And now we're going to strive to collectively, corporately, grow in our knowledge of who God is. And so um, that's a little explanation, and we'll do kind of more of that at least each month, whether it's about preaching or whether about music or whether it's about giving and other various um, things that we do. But we're in a series, and we're in a series that's going from Genesis to Revelation, and we're using a book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. And I know most of you have this book, don't you? A few of you don't, but mostly, I think we sold like 40 of them, which... That's a lot for us. Have you guys been reading? Yes, three people. Awesome. Thank you. I love you three people. Uh, Have you found it helpful? Maybe. Yes, one person. We'll see. We're we're, we're still alive. Um, We're using this book as a guide for our, it, it takes us through 16 passages, which obviously means we're not going through every book and every part of the Bible. Um, But it's meant to kind of, supplement as you're at home what's going to be taught this week and go ahead and begin preparing your hearts so you know what's going to happen. If you don't have one and would like one, let me know. Um, this is my only copy. It's my copy, so, but I can find out. I think we might have one more or we can get some other copies if you'd like one. Um, but what we're doing is we're going through uh, this book, which is helping us understand this book, the Bible, And we're going from Genesis to Revelation because even though the Bible is 66 books written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years, it's one story. And we just want to make sure we understand that story, that it's a gospel about Jesus Christ and what he is doing. And so what we have seen so far in the story, and we're on week six, this is week six, next week's week seven, uh, God is a cosmic, cosmic sovereign king and he made everything. We see that he created man in his image, and the purpose of man was to multiply and fill the earth, that there would be images of God everywhere in all the earth so that God would be glorified. Um, We see that man sinned and rebelled against God, and therefore man was removed from the garden, which do you remember what the garden represents? The kingdom of God. Awesome. There's always one. We'll go to lunch, man. It's on me this week. Uh, I'll tell you next week's answer. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we believe that so we have the garden, and man's removed from the garden, which represents God's presence and his kingdom, where God's rule is experienced. Um, but we're given this hint that there's still hope, because we're told that a serpent crusher is going to come. And last week, we saw that God chose a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and gave him these promises. Promises that there would be a great nation that would come from him. That, there, that this nation would be given land and that this nation would be a blessing to all peoples. Now, it's, under, it's important that we understand that. 
because the rest of the Bible is unpacking those promises. The rest of the Bible. So you might be going, wow, week six, we're still in Genesis. Genesis is really important. If you open up a giant novel, you don't start in chapter two. You start in chapter one because you want to know the foundation for what's going to happen. Genesis one is, or Genesis is like chapter one. It's helping us understand what has happened, who God is, who we are, what's the problem with humanity, and what God is doing. So the promises that God gives to Abraham are key as we make our way through the Bible. Now, as we saw, God's going to, um, last week we saw God is going to be the one who fulfills the promises to Abraham. Remember, he made a covenant. God is the only one who walked through the sacrificed animals saying, saying I will be the one to fulfill this covenant. God then um, blesses Abraham that he would have a son. His name is Isaac. See, good job. And Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. And God chose Jacob. And Jacob had his name changed to. This is like a little, like, little trivia here. This is good. And the 12 sons were named. Just kidding. I'm not going to make it. We should know them. Um, so he had 12 sons, and um, what we have, remember, Genesis 1, God, or Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. By now, at Genesis 49, there's a little under 100 people now that have come from the line of Abraham. We're seeing a people be formed. And so Jacob's name has been changed to Israel, which is why the God's people are called Israelites, and he has 12 sons, and now Israel, as he's about to die, is going to bless each of his sons. And particularly, we're going to look at one of the blessings that he gives to his sons, and so uh, what we do here is we stand when we read God's word, so I want to encourage you to stand, Genesis chapter 49, I'm going to read verse 1, and then what we're going to do is skip down to verse 8, because that's, that's where we're going to focus on the son Judah. So chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the pra- from. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and we know that this is your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you just reveal yourself to us. God, give us faith that we would understand. Increase our faith. God, help us to understand who you are and what this promise is of a coming king and how this king gives us so much hope. God, be with us today as we read your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. 
So, so keep your Bibles open. Um, verse 49, or chapter 49, verse 1. Let's just read that again. Jacob calls his sons and says, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So the author is wanting us to understand the blessings Jacob is giving to his children are not empty words. They're not wishful thinking. These, are, um, these blessings are not predictions of the future as if maybe they'll come true. These aren't birthday wishes. You, know, the, the, you, you have a cake. We're big birthday people at my house. You should come. We, we love birthdays. We celebrate a long time. Um, so we have a cake. It's pretty typical. We put in all the, all the candles. Um, and, and then we, we make a wish. Now, do those come true? Do your wishes come true? It depends if you've gotten a little more wise with your wishes. <laughs> you kind of make the really obvious wishes. Um, but uh, but I, I don't know about you, but most of my wishes have never come true. Um, they just don't because there's, there's no basis behind them. It's just like, oh, I hope this happens. Oh, it didn't. Oh, well. Um, that's not what this is. These are divinely inspired prophetic words that are telling us what is going to happen in the future. And so that's how the author is wanting us to understand these blessings. These aren't, these aren't maybes. These are what is going to happen. So uh, what we see is that there is a king who's going to come. And he's going to come from this tribe of Judah. So let's look at this. What kind of king is this? And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see three things about who this king is. And number one, we see he's a victorious king. If you look at verse 8, and then we'll look at verse 9, we see that Judah's brothers will praise him. Your father's son shall bow down before you. So we have these, these two ideas of worship. Just the other brothers and their families are coming before this person who's going to merge out of Judah. And they're bowing down before him. And then in between these two passages of praise is your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So what we have is this king is worshipped by all these people. And his hand crushes the neck of his enemies. And then if you skip down to verse 10, we see the words, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's an interesting word there, the peoples. Is, is that just referring to, to Abraham's sons? It could, but it could also very well be re referring to all peoples. Which, if we go all the way back to the promises of Abraham, if you remember in Genesis 12, they will be a blessing to all nations, meaning all people groups. That very well could possibly be what's hinted here. So what we have is a king who's going to be emerged that all of God's people, not just the tribes of Israel, but all of God's people who will be spreading out through all the world will come and worship him. And anyone who doesn't, his hand is on their neck. So what we have is a very universal king here. In verse 9, we see the king is compared to a lion. In fact, three different words are used for lion. Now, they just look like lion and lioness and lion to us. But in Hebrew, there's three different words. The idea is that this is a very mighty lion. And we see that he's gotten his prey. And he's gone up and he's stooped down. And he's crouched as a lion. So is this an idea that he's, he's taken his prey, he's eaten his prey, and now he's resting? And then we have the phrase, who dares rouse him? Who wants to rouse the lion? So I, I had a kid. Or I had a kid. I, have a do I had a dog growing up. I didn't have a kid growing up. I had a dog. Um, it was a S Siberian Husky and slept outside because 
Well, they have lots of fur. And so I loved, as a kid, sneaking up on that dog. I thought it was the coolest thing. She'd be sleeping, and I was like super stealth ninja trying to jump up and, and surprise her. Now, 95% of the time, she woke up before I got to her. But every once in a while, I actually got to her. She would jump up and startle teeth out. But she never bit me, luckily, probably very lucky. Um, I don't know if I'd do that with, with Joe now. Joe's my old cranky boxer. Um, but anyways, um, I'd do that. I didn't really have any fear. I would not do that to a lion. So my kids, right, they love reading books. And there's this series of books we have right now that are called uh, Who Would Win? And so basically it presents two animals, and it says who would win if these animals met each other in the wild. And so it gives all the statistics of the animals. And my kids love reading these things. We have a stack of them. Which, reading these books then takes us to watching YouTube videos. Well, really, what I'm doing is just letting my kids watch carnage as animals attack each other and kill each other. I don't know that this is wise parenting. But lions are crazy. Like, they are powerful animals. You get on YouTube and watch lions, and I mean, they're strong, fast animals. In fact, kings in the ancient world would use lions in their decor to decorate uh, their thrones and their throne rooms to give the sense of power. King Solomon, on his throne, uh, he had two lions for each uh, of his armrests. And then he had six steps that came up to his throne, and on each step there was two lions. So to come before King Solomon was to come before a very mighty king. He was very strong. That's what everything was giving the sense of here. Proverbs 30.30 says, The lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, Lions are mighty kings. And so what we have here is that Judah, from the line of Judah, there's going to be a king, and he's going to be worshipped, and he's a mighty king, a very powerful king, a strong king. And so we might say, well, who is this king? Remember, we're in Genesis. These people have no idea it would lead to Jesus at this moment. They just know a king is coming. And so as we were to make our way through the book, we might come to David. Oh, wow. David's going to be the, this lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, no, he, he didn't end up being that. Well, what about Solomon? I mean, he had all the lions around him. Well, no, he didn't end up being that either. And what we see is that uh, we had some good kings, we had some bad kings, but none of them quite fulfilled this. And in fact, what we see is that Israel, because of disobedience, eventually is divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom. They'll be defeated by Assyria, taken into captivity. Captivity? Captivity? You can say that word. The southern kingdom will then be taken into captivity by Babylon. And really, uh, we never see them in, in God's word really having freedom again. We always kind of see them under rule by other people. And so we might just be kind of going through the book going, well, who's this king? Who's this king that's going to be coming? Um, well, if we were to go to Revelation, which you can switch all the way back. So we're in Genesis. To turn all the way to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. We read something pretty interesting. Uh, this is in a vision of the throne room that John has. He says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. Who are we talking about? Who is this? Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
the root of David? Who is this one who has conquered? Well, most of you, you've been in church. You know the right answer, right? You know the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Um, well, who did he conquer? He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death. How did he do this? Well, that's interesting. If we keep reading Revelation 5, 6, we, we get a picture of how he did this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So what we have is that we're having this picture of the throne room, and we have the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming. So we have a lion, and then we have a lamb that was slain. Now, are these two different, are these two different people? No. That's the thing. It's the same person. The lion is the lamb that was slain. The lamb that was slain is the lion. So what we see is that that Jesus came, but he didn't come in, in his domineering, powerful self. He came like a lamb. And what he did is, through submission to the authorities, eventually he was arrested, he was crucified, And he was slaughtered like a lamb. But but was he a lamb? Yes. But he was also a lion. Because at the cross, didn't he accomplish something? I mean, was the cross just, oh, oops, that happened? Jesus came as the lion, but as the lamb that was slain. And as, as he was slain, he was actually putting his hand to the throat of his enemies and crushing the head of the serpent, overcoming death as he rose, conquering sin. You see, Jesus came, and by being the lamb, he was the lion. He crushed the enemies through his humility of coming to earth as a man and dying on a cross. A lot of times I think we think humility is weakness, but what is humility? I mean, humility is a lot like strength that is bridled. If you think of like a horse, a giant stallion, if you put a bridle in the horse's mouth, you can control this mighty, powerful beast. And that's kind of what humility is. It's it's power that's bridled, it's controlled. And so Jesus comes in this humble, extremely powerful, can destroy anyone he wants at any moment, but all that power that he has has been bridled been controlled that he would come and he would submit to the father who has sent him that he would then submit to authorities who would then arrest him and eventually crucify him but it's through his crucifying it's through him rising that he actually defeats the enemies and what do we read in philippians because he was humble in philippians 2 we read that the father has exalted his name above every other name and only a few knees will bow before him right And every knee will bow before him under the earth, on earth, and above the earth. I love that picture in Philippians that we get. It's just totality. Everyone bows. No one is left out. And then in Ephesians 1, we're told, because he's risen, he now sits far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come meaning forever. Jesus is the cosmic sovereign king. He's the one that we read about in Genesis 1 who speaks creation. 
And he's the one who enters into As a lamb that was slain, he's really the lion also. And he crushes the enemy. Now just, just pause. I know that we all know that Jesus, that the, the Sunday school answer, that's Jesus. But do we really know that Jesus is king? Do we really know? Do you really know that right now he's reigning on high? Like he's on the throne that rules over everything right now. Do you know that he will forever rule? There's no one that can overthrow him. Satan's not going to eventually get the upper hand and, you know, have this battle between good and evil. That's not it. Jesus won, and he will win. Remember, he's won at the cross, and when he comes back, he will consummate everything and completely destroy all evil. Does your life reveal that Jesus is king? Think that way. Does it reveal that he is king in every part of your life? Jesus came in humility, and he calls us to be humble. Are you humble? Jesus comes in obedience to the Father that we would be in obedience to him. Are you following the word? Does your life represent Jesus here on earth? Because that's what we're called. We're called ambassadors what we read in 2 Corinthians, that we actually come, an ambassador is someone who goes to a foreign country, we are in a foreign country because our citizenship is where? In heaven, so we're in a foreign country, that we would do what? We would represent the king. I just, I just, we know the answers, but do we live it out? Are we representing the king? Are we living for the king? I just want you to wrestle with that. Because if you're like me, it's real easy to say Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus is king. Yes. Oh, yeah, Jesus is king. Yes, I know he sits on the throne high above. Yep, I can quote all the scriptures. Yep. But do I live that way? Does his word hold authority over every part of my life? Or only on select parts? I want you to wrestle with that. It's easy to say Jesus is king. It's easy to, to use those words. But is he really? Because he's a king that's not going to go away, right? He's permanent. And that's our next point. He's a permanent king. Look at verse 10. We read, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis here. We read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. This is a little bit interesting. Hebrew is a little strange here. The word tribute, a little hard to translate. Um, most likely it refers to this king either receiving his kingdom or it's that he's receiving gifts uh, from his people. Either way, you could kind of wrestle and you kind of come to the same idea that this king is ruling a kingdom and the people worship him. So either way, it's, 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 it kind of means the same thing. The word until does not mean that there's going to be a cessation of his rule. It Rather, it means that there's going to be um, a heightened fulfillment of his rule so he's going to continue to worship and as he receives his kingdom and as he's continuing to worship he rules forevermore his rule is not ever going to end it's going to continue forever so we have a king he's really strong he's a lion cosmic sovereign never going to end his reign well that's cool why is that good news why is that good news someone said why is it good news jesus is always king what would you say 
Well, one thing we could say is, as the king goes, so goes the people. When we read the books of First and Second Kings, what we see is good king, what do the people do? Good things. Evil king, what do the people do? See, you already picked up on it. It's an easy principle. The people follow the king. What the king does, so does the people. We saw this in Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve represent all of humanity. When they sin, what happens to all of humanity? They're sinful. Because Adam and Eve were really to be uh, vice regents of God, in fact, kind of the kings on earth. And as they sinned, therefore all sinned because of them. What we read in Kings, first and second, in the Chronicles, a good king comes and we see the people strive after God. An evil king comes and the people fall away from God. So what we need is a king who's good, who's righteous, who's perfect, and whose reign will never end. Isn't that good news? That's Jesus. So why can, why can the people of God be forever led to be more like God and to glorify him? Because we have a king who leads us in perfect righteousness. We have a king who everything that he does is for our good and his glory. We have a king who never makes a wrong judgment, who never does a bad uh, decision, who never makes a bad decision. Everything he does is perfect, and he leads us in perfect righteousness. This is what we read kind of all throughout the Gospels, is just how Jesus is like the Father. In John 5, 19, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So what does the Son do? Only what the Father does. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What we have is this picture that the Son and the Father are in perfect union with one another. So everything that the Father desires, so the Son desires. So if the Son is our King, what is he leading us to do? To have the same desires as himself, which are the desires of the Father. Thus God is glorified. That's our King. That's what he does. That's how he leads us. Do you know that he leads you in perfect righteousness? Do you know how he leads you in perfect righteousness? Two ways. Number one, he gives you the spirit of Jesus. He gives you his spirit. In Galatians 5.16, we read this. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the spirit dwells in us. So we would do what then? Well, we're not going to gratify our sinful desires. So whose desires are we going to gratify? Jesus's, which is the Father's desires. Yeah. And so as he sets our minds on him, they're being conformed to be more like him. That we would love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. Now just think about this. If you wanted to talk to president right now, President Obama, could you? You probably couldn't even get close to him. Because we're not important people. <laughs> Maybe you are. I don't know how important you are. You can get right to the president. I have no means of getting to the president. There's no means. I'd probably be arrested. Um, but we have a king who's infinitely more powerful than the president. And we have direct access to because he lives within us. Just think about that. We have direct access to the king 
of the universe because he lives inside of you. That's a king like no other. Most kings, they distance themselves. They're superior. They look down. They have big throne rooms, which you have to look up all their stairs with all the lions up there to go, oh, wow, you're really great, and I can never get to you. But this king comes off the throne into his creation that we would know him and love him, and he would dwell with us. Look, when he says, follow me, he's not saying from way up here, follow me if you can. Ha, you can't really do it. He says, follow me, and then he comes inside of us and dwells with us so we can. Isn't that amazing? That's why we're not a religion of good works gets us to heaven. Good works don't get us to heaven. Jesus gets us to heaven, and he comes in and lives inside of us that we would do good things, but all by his grace. Yeah, yes, it's amen. Awesome truth. So he gives us his spirit. Is that cool? I think that's cool. Little emotion. You guys are kind of like, yep, that's neat. Okay. Um, secondly, that's, that's one way he leads us in righteousness. Now, there's something that the Spirit always uses, which is the, the word. See, I love that. We're, we're, we're getting right there. Let me just read 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Now, just pay attention to what this says about God's word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that, your purpose statement, so all this word is breathed out by God so that the man of God would be competent and equipped for every good work. So how is it that we're going to live a life of righteousness? Well, he gives us his word so we'd be competent and equipped to do all that he wants us to do. Guess what? That's what the Spirit does. He leads us to better understanding of the Word, that we would apply the Word and live out the Word. And it's as we know the Word, as we know the Word, that the commands of Jesus, they're not burdensome, they're not bitter, but they're freeing. They're beautiful, and they're lovely. And we see that there's full of joy in God's Word. It's through the Word and the Spirit that our King leads us and righteousness. And let me just say this. If you're not in the word, if you're not, then you're not submitting to the king. Just black and white. And you might say, well, that's too black and white. No, it's, it's really not. We could be a lot more harsh there. If you're not in the word, the word that's breathed out by the king, that we would be conformed to the king, if you're not in the word, you're not submitting to the king. It's a lack of faith. And you might say, well, hold on. It, it's, it's the truth of scripture. And that rubs you the wrong way. I'm not sorry. Like, that's the truth. And we need to know that this is his word. The king has given us his word that we would know him and love him. And he dwells in us so that we would love his word. So if you're struggling right now with reading his word, you're saying, I, I don't have time for the word. Then what, what I'd urge you to do is repent. Because there's a lack of faith in the king. So I want to encourage you to repent of that unbelief. Because the king leads us to love his word, that we would live out his word. And we need one another to encourage us. Because if you're like me, there are seasons that maybe we dig in real hard to the word. 
we're loving it, and there's times maybe for whatever reason we feel like we're moving away. That's where we need one another, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to help each other. Next point. A prosperous king. I really wanted there to be three Ps. I didn't know what other word to use in victory. If you have a good word, please let me know that later, because I really would have loved for it to be something with a P, and then we have a permanent king, a prosperous king, but I couldn't do it. Um, And so I did not try any harder than that. Uh, But we have a prosperous king. Look at verse 11 and 12. This is, now just get get, get your minds ready. Think that you're an agricultural people. Think that you're farmers, okay? You're farmers, and everything you grow is what you eat, okay? Everything you grow is what you eat. That's how you live. So just think, think that way. Let's just read verse 11 and 12 because I just think they're fun. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So this king is so rich, he takes his donkey and he goes up to the best vine, the best vine. And he ties his donkey up to it. And then he, he's like, oh, my clothes are dirty. He doesn't grab the OxyClean or anything else. He grabs the wine, and he pours wine all over his clothes, and he scrubs them clean. Now, this is imagery here. This is imagery. He's not actually taking wine to scrub his clothes. We know that when it worked. So you got it. This is a little bit of imagery. Um, you're an agricultural people. You treasure what you grow. You guard what you grow. You survive off what you grow. Do you tie your donkey to your best crop? Do you take the wine, your best juice that you have created, and do you wash your clothes with it? Oh, little dishes are dirty too. Scrub them with the wine? You do if you're so prosperous. You do if you are extravagantly rich. That's the picture here of this king. Mind-blowing extravagance. When you live off the land, you guard these things. But this king is so rich, he's saying, it doesn't even matter. Let's tie him up to this vine or this vine. Or just use wine for this. This is the picture that we get all throughout the Old Testament about the coming kingdom. Amos. Amos says this in chapter 9. See, Amos was happy. Kids are happy. Jackson, he, I want to make sure I said he. I was like, wait, he, he gets it. You think I'm kidding, but we're to come to Jesus like children. He gets it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from him. That's a regular type of picture we get in the Old Testament as we look forward to the coming of the kingdom. Wine flowing like a river through the kingdom of God. This is the king that brings about this prosperity. And in Genesis, back in Genesis here, we read that his eyes are darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. And, and honestly, I struggled with that. Um, I went to the commentaries, and they all said that communicates his prosperity also. Um, so I took them at their, their namesake for it because I was struggling kind of understanding that. Um, but they're all saying those are images of prosperity. So here we have, Abraham is chosen in Genesis 12. And we have one guy. He's given these promises by God. 
at the end of the book, we have a little less than 100 people who are now living in the, the most powerful nation possible, and they're told that one day there's a king coming, and he's going to be a victorious king, a permanent king, and a prosperous king. He'll be a king like no other. There's this hope of a king. Now, that sounds really good, but it sounds even sweeter and more desperate when we get to, to Exodus, which is the next book, and we see that Pharaoh all of a sudden forgets about who these people of Israel really are. And now he enslaves them. And for 400 years, they're going to be enslaved. For 400 years, they're going to carry the bricks of the Egyptians. They're going to go do all the, the harvesting for the Egyptians. They're going to do all the manual slave work for the Egyptians. And, and, God, or, and Satan is going to work in these people, and so that eventually the Pharaoh will say, all the firstborn males killed them. Remember, the seed of the, serp the serpent desires to kill the seed of the woman. So we're seeing this attack on God's people. So imagine you're enslaved for 400 years. But you keep remembering these promises. God is going to make us into a great nation. He's going to give us a land. And we're going to have a king. A king who's going to conquer all kings. Who's going to put his hand at the throat of Pharaoh and crush him. Who'll put his hand at the throat of everyone who opposes him and crush him. And ultimately does so at, at the serpent and crushes him. And you're looking forward to this king. And you begin crying out to God. We want you, God. Remember the promises you made. That's what we read as we go into Exodus, that God's people are crying out, remember your promises. What are the promises? God, you're going to make us into a great nation, give us a land, and give us a king who will reign. Ultimately, what they want is Jesus. Ultimately, what they want is Jesus. So the idea of a coming king was the hope for the people who were living in a foreign land. And guess what? That's our hope too. Our hope is no different. But the thing is, we know exactly who this king is. And we've already seen him put his hand to the neck of his enemies and crush the head of the serpent. Now when we look at prosperity, um, this world has greatly distorted that. And... There are many false gospels out there that distort that. There's things called the prosperity gospel. And I, we've talked about that here and there on, on Sunday mornings at times. Let me just help you. Rule of thumb, if they're on TV, they're a prosperity gospel unless proven otherwise. Okay? Rule of thumb. If you see them on TV, don't go, wow, pastor on TV must be good. Rule of thumb, most likely prosperity gospel if they're on TV. Now that's not everyone, but just think that way. Be very careful about what you watch on TV. Uh, one of the more popular pastor authors wrote a book titled Every Day of Friday. Another one, Your Best Life Now. The whole idea is that when God saves you, you get all the blessings now. You get the blessings that Jesus will bring at the end of time. You get them now. So that's the idea of the prosperity gospel. You get all the blessings now. 
Now let's just say that's true. Let's just say it's true. Now that's not taught anywhere in the New Testament. We'll just pretend it is. And we'll say, now what if when you came to know Jesus, instantly your bank account went from, you know, 100 to 100 million. And your, your house just kind of grew into a mansion. And your cars became awesome. And yeah, let's just say that's what it looked like. Wouldn't evangelism be easy? Now just think, guys, believe in Jesus. Look what he gave me. This is awesome. If you believe in Jesus too, you can have a house. Ooh, your house looks crummy. You should believe in Jesus. He'll give you a better house. Ooh, your car broke down? Believe in Jesus. He'll give you one that never breaks. You don't even need oil changes. I mean, that's, that's the idea. That's the idea. But what would we actually be winning people to? Would we be winning them to Jesus, the cosmic sovereign king who overcomes our enemy, that we would be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with him? Or would we just be given, or would we be believing in a guy who's just going to be a giant vending machine for us? So what does the Bible teach? Well, honestly, the Bible teaches so much more. See, the prosperity gospel, it actually promises too little doesn't promise enough. See, the prosperity gospel says you get everything now. But when we come to the New Testament, we see that there are blessings. Ephesians 1 says we're, we're all blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have grace, we have forgiveness, we have love, there's joy. But we also see suffering as a part of this life. We see that we've been blessed, and yet there seems to be when Jesus comes that all the blessings are going to be consummated and even brought into fuller experience. This is what we read. Now, now just think about what this says about what's going to happen in the future. Romans 8. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we call, cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, do you see the good news there? Because of our faith in Jesus, we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. Just pause there. We become co-heirs with Jesus. So when it says, we cry out, Abba, Father, who else cries out, Abba, Father? Jesus. So the very same way the Son talks to the Father, we talk to the Father. Because we are made sons. We're adopting the family. We're not second-rate family members. We're not the... Oh, yeah, he, he was adopted. He sits over there. It's not the way it works. It's brought right into the family of God, and we are treated the exact same way Jesus is treated. And the very blessings for Jesus, all that Jesus owns and has becomes what? Ours also. Prosperity gospel promises too little. It says, you want treasure? Believe in Jesus. You, all, you get all this stuff now. What does Matthew 6 say? Don't store up treasures here on this earth. This earth is going to be burned up, rolled away. Trust, uh, invest in the, in the next world. Put your treasures there. That's going to last forever. So Jesus is saying, believe in me, and you will have treasure forevermore. And you don't just get some second-rate treasure. We, we possess all that the Son possesses because the Father sees us as he sees the Son. Now, just think about this. Now, just expound on this. Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven letters. 
The seven letters go to seven churches. The seven churches represent churches of all age. And, and they, the message to the churches are the message that we need today to look and see where we're at. The last letter is to the church of Laodicea. And to that church, uh, we have a lukewarm church. Very possibly most, if not all of them, are unbelievers. He's calling them to believe in him. So get this. It's actually a church that most of them are not believers. And so he calls them to believe in him, and if they do, if they persevere to the ones who conquer, that's the word it uses, he says, then when Jesus returns, then we will sit with him on the throne with his father. So think about that. The blessing that Jesus shares, he's saying, you'll sit with me on my throne, and I sit with the father. We sit on the throne with the Father and with the Son of God. That's what the gospel promises. See, the prosperity gospel promises way too little. You want money and land and all now? Sure, those things are great, and if God gives them to you, great. Use them for his glory. But if you're like me, you probably don't have a lot of that stuff. We don't put our hope in those kind of things because those things are all going to pass away. We put our hope in Jesus because he promises that we'll be with him, and he shares everything with us he doesn't hold anything back so as we leave are you promised to get over a sickness are you promised not to get sick are you promised that you're going to have wealth no none of those things if they happen great but we do have a promise that we can bank on it's that jesus has defeated the enemy and he's coming back and we'll be with him forever and we're going to dwell with him in his kingdom and guess what Revelation 21 describes his kingdom like? It's a dump. Not quite. It says it's like this radiant jewel, and it's brilliant gold, and the streets are pure gold, and there's jewels all around it, and this kingdom fills the entire earth. That's where he calls us to live with him. That's the hope we have is that we live with the king, and he holds nothing back from us. All that he has, he gives to us. Look, we're in a presidential year. We're all cheering for Trump. <laughs> but you can cheer for who you want. I don't care. Um, our faith should affect the <laughs> I couldn't even say that. Um, I'm not judging. Um, but as Christians, um, there's persecution all throughout the world. Now, in America, the intolerance of Christianity is escalating. Oppression has increased. Um, when we look around the world, we see injustice, evil, genocides, dictators, so much more. Um, many of you, maybe a lot of you, we're, we're, putting, we're hoping that the president's going to fix some of these things. And I would say, you know what? We should pray for the president. Our faith should affect who we vote for. It should affect who we vote for and who we believe God is leading to. We should pray. The Bible tells us to pray for our leaders, that they, would, um, that they would know God, that they would lead well. We should pray for that. But is our hope to be in the president? Is our hope to be that maybe we'll have less unemployment, better medical plans, better foreign trade policies, lower taxes? Is that our hope? No, not really. If those things happen, great. We'd love that. But is our hope to be in a president who sits in the White House? Or is our hope in a king who sits in a throne above the White House? In fact, he sits in a throne above every other throne here on earth. 
In fact, he sits on a throne above the entire universe, promising that one day he will make all things new. And he already has put his hand on the neck of the enemy and crushed the head of the serpent. And when he comes back, he'll even consummate that judgment by taking all who do not believe in him, and they will be judged forever. But for all who do believe in him, he invites us to his presence. So I want to, uh, I just want to ask you, is that your hope? Is your hope in Jesus? Are you submitting to the king? Are there areas that you look at in your life where you're not submitting to Jesus? And, and don't think of submission as merely a, this is what I do and don't do. When there are areas that we're not submitting, those are areas of unbelief. For instance, um, let's say that we don't give any money. We never give our money to, to the offering. Um, I'm not saying you have to give all your money to the offering, uh, but let's say we don't ever give. We're saying, God, I need my money. I need to use it for what I need to use it for. I don't trust that if I give this money in the offering, that then I'll have money for other things. So there's an unbelief in who God is there. Do you see that? There's an unbelief that if I give, I don't know if he's actually going to provide for me. There's an unbelief um, in, uh, in sharing the gospel with, with our coworkers. Well, you know, at work they tell me I'm not allowed to share my faith. And so I, I just can't do it. So I don't do it. Okay, but we also submit to one who's much greater than your boss. So how does that work? And how do you, in love and respect to your work environment, also show submission to the Father who has called you to be a missionary everywhere you go? Or do we say, but if I get fired from my job, well, who are you trusting your job with? And you might say, well, are we really being responsible at this moment? Well, I think we want to make responsibility a nice, cute little thing that we can put a little bow on and say, I'm responsible, and it looks cute in the world's eyes, but to be faithful to God is sometimes going to be doing things that, are, that look foolish in the world. But in, in 1 Corinthians 1, we realize that God loves to use the foolish things for his glory. So I'm not saying we should go defy our bosses and, and all risk our jobs tomorrow. Great if you do. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily path, but how do we be faithful? And the areas that we're not faithful in are not just, well, I need to step it up a little bit. It's areas of unbelief in my life. Of the king who has come. So I just want to encourage you. It's easy to say Jesus is the king. It's easy to use those words. Are we really living that way? And I wrestle with that too. There's areas that, yeah, it's easy to be like, oh yes, I live for this for God. And these areas, oh, I don't know, that's kind of hard here. What Jesus is calling us to do though is through his word and the power of his spirit to know him more, that we'd be more transformed into his image, that we would submit to him in everything. Uh, if you have any questions, you can text those in. I think we have the, the number up there. I'm going to pray, and if you have any questions, we will Look at those. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you've sent your son. And we thank you that your son is the king. And we thank you that he came to the cross. He came like a lamb that was slain, but God, he's the lion who conquered. And God, we thank you for that.
We thank you that our trust is in the lion. And even when he's like a lamb, he still conquers. And God, he reigns. Your son reigns as king. And he reigns in perfect holiness that you would be glorified. And he leads us that way. Father, I just, God, be with us as a church that we would submit to you in every way. God, convict us of areas of sin in our life where we do not worship you. Convict us of areas of sin where we have not submitted to you. And God, bring us deeper into your word that we would know you. And that, God, we would have a more accurate picture of who you are, and that you would increase our faith, and that you would become even more lovely and beautiful to us. Father, thank you that you are our hope. God, help us to live as though you are a hope. In your name, Jesus, amen. Um, one question. What if I have trouble submitting to the king? Um, I, think, I think I would, he then goes on to say, I find it easy to submit in some ways, difficult to find, difficult to submit in other ways. Uh, honestly, I think that's the testimony of the Christian life. So don't think that you're alone when you look at yourself and be like, oh, I struggle in certain areas. Um, that's where, to some degree, we all are. So don't think that you're on an island somewhere and no one else struggles like you. Um, I think community is really important. We need to keep being with others, encouraging each other. Um, but we need to repent. I'd encourage the repentance and asking God to show us where our unbelief is that he would then build up our faith and strengthen it. Um, I think that's how I'd probably answer that. I don't think we have any other questions today. Um, remember, we try to do questions at the end of sermons just to give a means of um, immediate response to anything that you're wrestling with. Um, I'm going to pray and bless the offering, and uh, then the team is going to come up, and they're going to close us as uh, we praise, we praise our King. Let me pray one more time. Father, we praise you. Be with us now as, as we take an offering. And Lord, I realize I talked about giving today, so Lord, I pray people don't give out of guilt. Um, but Lord, may we give because you are King, and you are the one who has given us all that we have. And may we give as a response to the fact that you have given to us, and that we know that you will continue to provide for us because you are our King. So God, I pray, bless the offering. God, we pray that this offering is used to make disciples, that more and more people would know you and more and more people would spread throughout this earth and that you'd be glorified. In your name, Jesus, amen.